the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeed, and he's here to say good afternoon. Welcome. It's a Tuesday. I've got that on good authority, and it's the 22nd of March. Craig Roberts keeping you company as we do Tuesday through Fridays on this program, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Coming up a little bit later on in tonight's show, we're going to uh, sort of unpack some of the reasoning behind the Russian attack against Ukraine, though let me be quick to highlight, underscore, italicize. Tucker Carlson, are you listening? This wasn't provoked by Ukraine. There might have been some political missteps that Putin has capitalized on. But at the end of the day, let me make it abundantly clear that Russia is the aggressor here and that 100 percent of the tragic and completely unnecessary loss of life sits squarely on the head of Vladimir Putin, who will no doubt be judged for it in eternity and may even be judged for it right here in the now. We'll talk to our good friend Bob Zadek about what NATO is, why Putin feels threatened by it, and how strong is the NATO alliance. That coming up later on in tonight's program. We've seen yet another state pass more laws addressing the issue of abortion on demand in America. And, of course, the United States Supreme Court is set to hand down a decision that may very likely determine the fate of Roe versus Wade. That decision could be available as soon as June of this year. Meanwhile, if you think the debate over when life begins and how to defend those that have no voice is unique to America, think again. Our neighbors across the pond in Britain are struggling with this issue as well, as Brad Dacus reports. Brad, of course, is a constitutional lawyer and the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. And, and Brad, I, you know, you, you try to give people, I guess, the, uh, the benefit of the doubt. When they talk about choice, you and I understand that that's largely very misguided and, uh, and leaves out of the equation the fact that the baby has no choice when it comes to an abortion. But when you see courts going as far as saying to a doctor that you must set your own sense of moral values, trash the Hippocratic oath you likely swore to when you became a physician to do no harm, and, and essentially withhold from women the ability to reverse a potential 
abortion process, as in the case of RU486 or other similar types of abortifacients where uh, early on uh, reversal medication can be given, particularly if they've had a change of heart and mind. And for a court to say to that doctor, no, you may not not do any harm. In fact, we insist that you do harm. You know, it certainly is an indicator of the depravity of man. But help us understand a bit more about what's going on here legally. Yeah, a high court in the United Kingdom is scheduled to hear the case of a Christian doctor who's been banned from providing life-saving treatment for unborn or preborn babies. The doctor is asking the court to revoke the order. Uh, by the medical uh, regulator, the tribunal that they have there, uh, prohibiting them from being able to save uh, un- uh, pre-born babies' lives. You know, I think it's uh, it's real. Uh, you explained it really well, uh, Craig. In that, uh, you know, oftentimes women will, you know, get the uh, abortion drug. They'll take it, but they have to take two uh, drugs first. They take one, and then time uh, after a period of a short period of time, then they take the second one uh, to finish, you know, the abortion. But after they take the first pill, many times they have, you know, uh, convictions. Like, what am I doing? I'm killing this precious, precious baby, uh, and they have remorse. Well, this doctor provides them a an abortion reversal uh, pill, if you will. It's actually progesterone, and it's a, it's a natural hormone. And uh, women take that, and it has a very a high success rate. We're looking at 64 to 68 percent success rate of delivering a healthy baby after the mother has already um, you know, started the abortion but taken this natural hormone progesterone. So it's, uh, it's proven, uh, but uh, the abortionists there uh, you know, are, are against this. They want to see as many abortions uh, as possible. They don't want to see these things stop. And so they brought the pressure against him, and now he's fighting to be able to, to, uh, to do his job, which is to save lives. Well, what grounds do you make that kind of an argument? If a woman in a unplanned pregnancy initially wishes to terminate that pregnancy and then either gets more information, has a change of heart, or or otherwise changes her mind. I mean, we always hear this mantra about it's a woman's choice. So if a woman can choose to begin a um, a medically induced abortion, why can't she choose to terminate that process and keep the child? I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me. It just seems to be, I mean, wrought with, um, you know, obviously there's, there's there's moral inconsistencies here all the way around on the topic, but particularly when you say it's all about a woman's right to choose, and then she chooses life, and we're, set, we're told, no, no, she can't make that choice. I mean, it just, just, it just defies the imagination. Well, as we've seen recently in this country regarding uh, medical issues uh, involving COVID, um, this is a classic example where false information, ignoring the facts, is taking place. The abortion provider there in the United Kingdom who filed the, who, uh, this uh, complaint uh, against this doctor uh, is, is making the assertion that, quote, there's no uh, evidence base, end quote, behind uh, the idea of reversing an abortion. Uh, it's just simply not true. The, uh, you know, Sue Turner, the director of the Physicians for Life, uh, you know, t- pointed out that, uh, in fact, it has been successful. It is successful. And in most cases, it saves the life of the baby. Like I said before, a 64 to 68% success rate of saving babies' lives. And the babies are, are healthy babies that are born 
a very high success rate. So uh, it's not it's not justified. It's not based on uh, on truth and facts. Uh, they're trying to use lies to prevent him from doing what he knows is right. Just as in the United States, there are many doctors uh, in a similar similar predicament wanting to give uh, treatments and antiviral medications to patients, and uh, that uh, based on false grounds, they're they're prevented from doing so. And have threats also of losing their license. Well, and you know, at the at the end of the day, there, there there are measures. There is science that will allow us to move out of the realm of of opinion and into square fact. And right. uh, you know, this is a case where I mean, you're citing percentages: sixty four, sixty eight percent success rate in reversal after having taken at least the first abortifacient abortifacient pill. So that says to me, somebody's done a study to come up with those numbers and demonstrate that it, in fact, can be reversed in, in at least, uh, uh, you know, greater than 50% of the time, and yet to look at that and say, no, 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 that's, that's, uh, that's not the case. I mean, it, it just shows you how far people are willing to, uh, to look the other way when it comes to settled science just because they have an agenda at hand. And, and sadly, the agenda here seems to be, well, uh, you know, we, uh, we want abortion at all costs. Now, when the argument is based on Planned Parenthood, for example, here in the States, where there's financial uh, issues at stake here, meaning that, well, if, if they perform the abortion, they charge the fee. If they don't, they don't get the money. And then you can at least say, well, there, there's what's in it for them. In this case here, there is no what's in it for them. There's nothing in it for them whatsoever to benefit at all uh, other than to say, yeah, we helped to terminate the life of one more baby. That's not exactly something you want to list on uh, on your profile online. It's... You know, I would say it defies the imagination, but it certainly doesn't defy man's sinful nature, that's for sure. Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Thank you for that update, and uh, we'll appreciate you continuing to keep us uh, apprised of this case as it makes its way through the British court system. Sad, but I won't say unbelievable. 515 from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We often hear stories about people that struggle with um, addictions of one sort or another, or in other cases, people that deal with um, depression that uh, is not of their own choosing, particularly in terms of a, a diagnosis of clinical depression where people sometimes, in spite of their best efforts, are fighting a, a, a monster that they just can't quite face and deal with. What does it mean? How do you address that? I think that uh, while we've made some great and significant strides in the mental health community in understanding what so-called clinical depression diagnosis is and how to treat it, how to deal with it, for a lot of us in the church, this is still kind of a big curiosity. It's a ministry. Um, Joining me now is a gentleman who had to deal with this in terms of um, his um, ministry partner, being diagnosed with clinical depression that eventually ended up taking his life. He talks about the story in a not-so-typical journey of a Mennonite actor. The book is called Laughter is Sacred Space. Ted Schwartz, great to have you on the show today. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. Fascinating book and a lot of turns uh, and, I think, ways in which we can learn from your life story. Your um, your beginnings are kind of unique in the sense that uh, you were studying in seminary and uh, had full-on plans to become a, a pastor in the Mennonite community there, part of the, uh, I guess, what, the Pennsylvania Dutch community. 
Yeah, around that area, a little bit east of uh, what we generally consider to be the, um, the classic Amish Mennonite uh, Pennsylvania Dutch area, a little bit east of that toward Philadelphia. Okay, so that that yeah. uh, general neck yeah. of the woods. And uh, along the way, uh, it sounds like God had different designs than you did. Is it fair to say it that way? I think that's a pretty good way to say it. Yeah, I, I, I think that I, I'm a person who... Um, it, like many of us, I think we're confused by some of the directions that our lives seems to be taking, and, and uh, God's hand in that may may not be a very um, very visible at the time being. Makes an awful lot of sense uh, in retrospect. Um, I was supposed to be a, a, a traditional pastor in a pulpit, and uh, fell in love with theater while I was in seminary. And uh, I was an older student, a non traditional student, married with three kids, three kids, and. Uh, and started um, a path uh, toward being an actor and writing writing uh, plays. And uh, I had met a um, another quite talented comedic partner, um, Lee Eshelman, and we began doing comedy together. And then and started working on biblical story and trying to find where the humor was in that story. Not not trying to make fun of something uh, by laying on the laughter on the outside. Um, I like to think of it as finding where the humanity and the humor connect and create. Uh, situations of humor out of, out of trying to uh, feel out a character from the inside out. How did your your community, Ted, your family, you mentioned it was kind of a, a non-traditional trajectory for you anyway, yeah. insofar as the fact that you were already married and with the family, and I understand that the congregation that was anticipating you to, to eventually uh, become their pastor was covering uh, your expenses and so forth, yeah. and, and, and yeah. you make this, what it would, from an outsider, it appear to be just 180. How do you go from studying to become a, a traditional Mennonite pastor, very stodgy? and serious, you know, as, as I guess some perspectives might be, to suddenly being a comedic actor on a stage, working with a uh, another partner in yeah. interpreting Scripture, bringing Scripture to life, finding the humor, again, not the ha-ha, let's make fun of it, uh, poke fun at it, rather, yeah. but to see the humanity side, as you say, of it all. It just, it seems to be just two absolute opposite ends of the continuum. Well, I think at one level it really does feel that way, and my congregation back home was not very happy with me. Initially. I guess not. Huh? Uh, and my wife has been uh, extremely um, patient uh, over the years. As uh, anyone who, who starts their own business then knows that the pieces of, of struggling to uh, to make make ends meet in that direction too. I, I think I've come to the conclusion that it makes an awful lot of sense um, because um, I think theater can be a wonderful metaphor for how we are supposed to function as human beings. Um, uh, to be a good actor means that you're completely present in the moment. Uh, you you have empathy. Uh, you care about another person. That's the only way you can feel like uh, you are connecting to one another on stage. There's a, a great deal of humility and vulnerability that happens when you're an actor on stage. And it makes a lot, a, a lot of sense um, uh, at one level. Uh, and also, um, it's storytelling. And, and story stories remain one of, if not the best way to communicate truth, and uh, to grab people's emotions and where their hearts are is to tell stories. Does it make um, it yeah. easier to to see other perspectives too? And I ask that question, Ted, because let's face it: when you're when you're an actor, you're you're essentially becoming someone that you're not, and you're yeah, attempting you, to convince yeah. the audience that you you are this person whom you're not really. Yes, and when absolutely. you get into that position, does it allow you to see things from a different perspective? Is, is that is that how you maybe yeah. eventually were able to say, no, this full-time pastoring thing in a Mennonite church, no, that's not exactly what I'm called to do. <laughs> 
I, I think that was a great deal of it. I think it's part of why it felt like home to me. I felt like I was finally where I was supposed to be. I think I would have been uh, perhaps a decent pastor, uh, but there's a good chance that I would have been a very frustrated pastor. Uh, theater allowed me to find places where I was able to use the gifts that I think I was given uh, much more fully. Um, and I think you're exactly right. You have to learn how um, to care about another person uh, to be able to fully adapt on stage and to be convincing that you're you're someone else. Um, theater and acting is a wonderful paradox of pretending to be someone else and being completely holy who you are. Mm. The best actors are the ones that just open themselves up and let you see what's inside. And and that is why we connect to people that, that we feel like are good actors because we can feel them being completely honest. So to uh, be completely... To be, to be convincing to those of us that are on the other side of the stage or the screen, as the case may yeah. be, yeah. Um, you, you have to take on, so to speak, enough of this character and demonstrate enough understanding and, and sympathy, maybe to the point of empathy for who yes. this person is, maybe the plight that they are facing to, to be thoroughly convincing. And I'm wondering, did, did all of that experience help make it easy for you along the way in trying to make sense out of um, the, the, the horrific challenge that Lee was facing with a diagnosis of clinical depression? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I, I think that uh, perhaps so. I, I'm not sure uh, an empathetic person will be drawn, I think, to, to, to acting in the arts, uh, but it will also teach you. Uh, I think that's probably the case. It, it, it's, you know, it was a complicated relationship in many ways. We were, we were best friends, um, but we were trying to negotiate this business as well as creatively. And anytime anybody, uh, anyone tries to create something together, be it writing or writing music together, they know that there, there's certain tensions on, on, what, on, what, on what that means. And um, sometimes best friends should go into business, and sometimes they should. For us, it worked really well, um, the illness notwithstanding. Um, you, you spend an awful lot of time together when you have a traveling company. Uh, sometimes we spent more time with uh, one another than we did our wives. We used to joke about it being uh, our second marriage for each of us. So um, I think that was part of it. I, I didn't know a lot about mental uh, illness in terms of depression and bipolar illness at all before we met Lee. Um, and so it was a very much of a learning process. You, you, you try to have as much empathy as you can for the struggles that they're going through, but sometimes life has to Life has to be lived, and um, everything can't stop around. Um, if there's a business to run, there's a family to run. His wife, you know, they're raising a family as well. Um, so, yes, that, that's very much the case, uh, that it was helpful. But I think any struggle like that that you go together, there's going to be ups and downs with that. And, um, uh and, and it sounds like there were in this case. I mean, you're you're sure. watching this happening. You're trying to understand what's happening, and yet at a level. I mean, I, I guess it's it's not as easy as it might seem to be when we say, "Well, just try to get into the other person's head, walk a mile in their shoes." This is <laughs> this is it takes it a little bit further than that, doesn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. Um, it there's only so much you can go. Um, uh, I think it was the illness that, that made, um, uh, I wouldn't call it a barrier, but there's some things that it's, it's impossible to know how someone else is feeling when they're, when they're struck with an illness like that. Um, 
my own depression that I felt uh, after Lee's death and, and uh, trying to figure out what was next and, and what did it all mean and the grief that goes along with that. Uh, I remember thinking a couple of times, I said, uh, I, I know what this feels like to, to, to try and function on a daily basis with something that is much worse. Um, I don't know how people do it. Um, and that gave me a little bit of insight, but it, 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 I want to be very clear that it was nowhere anywhere close to, to what Lee would have gone through on a regular basis, where simply getting out of bed feels like it's the biggest struggle you're going to do it, go through that day. Yeah, I mean, we're in a season, for example, this time of year, when a lot of folks struggle with varying degrees of depression because... It's a first major holiday with a loved one who was passed on. Uh, there's there's some sense of loss in life, and uh, all of a sudden the holidays don't seem to mean as much as they used to. And there may be folks listening to our conversation right now saying, you know, uh, Ted, Craig, I'm there right now. Uh, I struggle with getting out of bed in the morning. I'm not quite sure how to get myself motivated. Uh, it's every fiber within my being to get up, get dressed, and go to work and try to put on a happy face when I don't feel like doing any of that. Um, what does all of this mean? How do I address all of it? Um, joining me today in the conversation, Ted Schwartz. Um, Ted, as we mentioned earlier, is a Mennonite actor um, who talks about life after uh, his creative partner took his own life. Uh, following a, a multi-year battle with bipolar illness uh, that he eventually succumbed to the disease. And uh, how do we deal with varying degrees of, um, be it depression to an, uh, one extreme, uh, to, to outright uh, mental illness on another? We'll get back to more of our insights today right after an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Our conversation today is with Mennonite actor Ted Schwartz. The book is called Laughter is Sacred Space, a not-so-typical journey of a Mennonite actor. This journey from studying to become a full-time pastor to discovering the, the arts and then moving in a ministry direction that way, and then the diagnosis that we mentioned earlier of your partner, Lee, struggling with a clinical diagnosis of, of depression to the point of being bipolar. We talked earlier, Lee, about uh, folks being depressed around the holidays, and that certainly can be a challenge. But Lee's, uh, Lee's disease went much deeper than that, didn't it? Yes, it did. It was, it was the kind that, um, well, I described it at one time, it's, it's, the, uh, it's the constant companion, it's the monster that hides not just under the bed, but around every corner. It's, it's part, of, uh, part of every day. It's part of, um, it's, uh, I, I call it sometimes the demon that sits on the shoulder and whispers in your ear. Mm. Um, it, it, it's hard to... Um, it's hard to really articulate some of the issues that, that you seem to, to deal with. Medication is an important part of anybody's treatment, medication, and therapy. Um, but that can... Uh, most of those have, uh, at least at some level, um, medication, I mean, side effects that affect also uh, who you are as a person, and, and it, uh, it, it can be frustrating because you don't think you, you are who you uh, are at the core of your being. Um, for some, it, it becomes um, uh, a spiritual dilemma, and um, I really don't think it, it, it should be. Um, people cast themselves in, 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 in being distanced from God because they have this particular illness, and, and I think it's a, uh, it's a horrific, um, I'm not sure I'd call it a mistake, a misnomer about, about what it is. 
How how did you f- discover? How did you first find out about Lee's passing? Well, it, in, in many in many cases, apparently, uh, in young men in their early uh, early to mid twenties, it can it can uh, surface. Um, so I met Lee when he was 23, and uh, so there were certain, certain hints of it before that. And uh, I was in full-time school, uh, in uh, finishing college and then going into seminary, so I had a certain amount of, of um, life that I was doing there with a family of three boys, um, uh, very young, four, four, two, and six months when I started school. Uh, so I and my wife were, were really engrossed in that, so it wasn't until Lee and I began... Uh, to do a bit more work together and started seeing each other as, as, as friends and friends of the family. He was still single at the time. So it was within two years that it started to surface. And um, um, I mean, everybody has points where they're despondent, um, but they usually see that there's, uh, oftentimes we can see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel and we, we help, we talk to people, we we talk to pastors or we talk to friends, we talk to counselors, you get professional help and you can find your way through it. Uh, for me, it just seemed to be... Uh, Something that that with yo-yo, the manic manic parts were were exhilarating and scary at the same time because he was tremendously creative. Uh, he was a, he was a visual artist and he was a, a wonderful actor at the same time. So he'd be wonderfully creative at those times. Um, I think uh, a twenty to thirty year of struggle with this um, can wear you down. Um, so where that the highs are no longer very high. Uh, but the lows continue to be low. Um, uh, that's what I, I felt like I've experienced with Lee. And, um, it, 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 at the point where he, he had taken his life, it didn't feel like it was too, in, in my mind, tremendously different than any other events over the, the previous 10 to 15 years. Um, and, you know, we often hear that, that yeah. we look at these the circumstances immediately surrounding a person's decision to take their own life. Yeah. And you say, well, you know, the day before, the day yeah. of, they, I saw them that morning. They seemed to be quite normal. Yeah. yeah, a couple of things had happened the day before that might have added a bit to the stress, but didn't seem That's to be right. anything over the, the top, anything extraordinary. But you mentioned yeah. something, uh, and uh, maybe it was just in, in quick passing, but I think profound observation, Ted, and that is the idea that this tends to wear you down after a time, that this is not a single event, but layer upon layer upon layer. Am I right? Exactly. Exactly. We we had attended a concert the night before, uh, about two hours away, with another mutual friend. I had a wonderful time. Three, it was guys' night out. We, we had a, a great time. And then the next, that morning, uh, we set up for a show. We were due to do two performances locally, Friday and Saturday night, and we set up on Thursday morning. Um, so all of those things seemed very familiar. Um, there was, I, I knew he was agitated, or, or I should say he was he was uh, anxious. Um, that that didn't seem to be anything tremendously different. And um, you know, in 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 almost twenty years on the road, we missed um, one show for a snowstorm and um, a second half of a show because I fell and, and uh, contuded my arm. Uh, on the edge of the stage but in 20 years that's the only shows we've ever missed so it never entered my mind that we would miss a show hmm. um, for this particular reason Let's pause on that point. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. Uh, With us today is actor Ted Schwartz. A look at his book, Laughter is Sacred Space. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Back to our conversation today. Ted Schwartz is with us. His book, Laughter is Sacred Space, uh, newly published, by the way. And uh, you can, of course, uh, order a copy through the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. And, uh, Ted, is the book available also on your website? It is, TedAndCompany.com. And company all spelled out. Correct. The and and company all spelled out. Ted, I'm curious, how did you get word of Lee's decision? Uh, I was making supper, and uh, I got a phone call from a mutual friend who was a neighbor, uh, and it's not somebody you, you know, it's a friend, but it's not somebody I expect to hear from uh, around that time. And uh, she said... um, the words is someone with you and those are never good words here and uh, said you need to come over Um, it didn't tell me exactly why but it it didn't take a lot of imagination to to uh, figure that out in the moment we say we're shocked we're surprised but thinking back on it is it fair to say that there were enough signs there that you might have seen some of this coming I think the words that I used, and I think a number of other people use the same words for a similar situation, is you're you're surprised but not shocked, or yeah. you're shocked but not surprised. Yeah. Um, it's those kind of those kind of issues that um, um, that I think anyone who's who's been touched by it at all, uh, if, if from a very close or personal basis, would, would feel familiar. That's that's a good way to describe it. Yeah. Uh, on the back side, what would you say that you've learned from this? I mean, we look at these tragedies, and I know we go through the, gee, what should I, what could I have done differently? What could I have said? How could we have intervened or helped? All of those questions immediately flood through your mind, and and we we struggle with. But then, as we try to make sense of it all, we try to find the uh, what do you say the the proverbial silver lining in this cloud, yeah. things of that sort. Uh, I have started to uh, be in conversation with a young man of a similar age that Lee was who was struggling with a similar issue. He's very talented. He's not an actor, but we've uh, done some work together with uh, from the technical um, video aspect of it again. And I think it's to be there, to be listening as much as possible, to be empathetic as much as possible, to encourage them to see professional help. Uh, if medication is part of uh, a prescribed um, um, Regimen that that you listened uh, that you listen and uh, what, what happens many times is, is especially from people who have um, perhaps a spiritual or religious background. Uh, maybe you're a Christian and you feel like this is not something my my well being should not be dependent upon something that comes in a bottle. And we uh, and they sometimes um, they go off medication. Um, that that can be very dangerous. Um, that's often a trigger point. Um, for uh, a deeper crash, um, which um, can have similar results, not always, but it could. Um, what I've learned, oh my. Um, I think what I've, what I've learned mostly, uh, you would say, is that uh, the depth of, of, of care, the depth of spirit within the community that I'm in right now is much, much deeper than I had imagined that it might be. Um, what I've learned about dealing with someone with this particular issue is that um, um, you can you can be there as much as you as you can, um, knowing that there are other forces, there are other illnesses that you you just can't fix. Um, no no amount of talking or listening that I that I could do would change that. Um, 
and, and, and what you said, I think there's perhaps significant because so often we get into the, well, if I just said this or somehow that somehow we we convince ourselves that we can talk somebody out yeah. of clinical depression. This is not an individual who simply is having a difficult time sort of, uh, shall we say, connecting right. the dots in life. And uh, one or one or two good lessons from a slightly older American will set them no. on the right path. No. Uh, this goes much <laughs> much deeper than that and 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 maybe the efforts in trying to convince ourselves that we could have said something that would have changed it all miraculously uh is 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 really torturing ourselves at a level isn't it i think it is and that's that's the one thing that i continue to uh to struggle with i actually talked to another another um uh, radio station this this morning um, uh, and I've started, I, I've written a, a, a one-man show based on the book, um, based on my experience, not just with Lee, but a large portion of it is the relating to Lee and the discovery of art and theater together and, and, uh, and his suicide and what that meant. And that um, it's not uh, original with me by any means, but the mourning is, uh, the act of mourning is, a, is, is just that, an action. You choose to mourn, you choose to do the things that are self-care. Um, it's a decision that you make. Uh, grief is completely different in that you don't know when it's going to show up, and um, it it and and I I say in the play that I, I made the uh, the sarcastically a brilliant I say it sarcastically a brilliant decision to not make a decision to mourn, but instead to work harder to recreate myself and my business as, a, as an acting company. And then to fight the grief. And the ways that we fight the grief sometimes is, not always, but sometimes is to deny, deny its existence by convincing yourself that you didn't care that much, that it didn't matter that much. It's the way that we try and protect ourselves. It's a coping mechanism. It's a coping mechanism. It's a dead end. It's, it's uh, what I say in the plays. It's a bit like taking a rancid piece of meat and throwing it behind the couch and hope no one notices. <laughs> Um, you know it's going to catch up to you sooner or later, but you just try and hide it. Yeah. Um, and and that, um, I think it's the biggest thing that I've learned is that um, um, <laughs> that that's not a very wise thing to do. Does this also um, for change you? To, does it force you to become more? forward looking and by that I mean oftentimes we'll get stuck in the past on this thing uh, well, there was a suicide in my family many years ago and boy the amount of time that, that many of us spent on all the what ifs and gee whizzes yeah. and so forth and yet I think instead of you know while there is a time of mourning and certainly at the time of grief then yeah. to say okay instead of channeling our en- energies into what we can never change because it's done what yeah. can we do moving forward to be more sensitive more caring, more empathetic, put more into life, get more out of it, and 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 maybe make make things better for somebody else, if not for them, for somebody else. I think that's I think that's a, a great sentiment. It is astoundingly hard to do when you're in the middle of it. Um, I think that's ultimately where we need to end up, and I think um, I can't speak for Lee, obviously, but I think that's where he would want want me to be. Um, I, I, I think what, what, what truncated my, my, my recovery, uh, and healing out of that is I, um, I chose not to recognize the deep grief that was there and moved forward a bit too quickly. 
Um, part of that, part of what happened when they died, it's not simply losing a friend, it was losing the business as well. So if I was going to maintain my company, I had to, um, in essence, um, recreate uh, an entire um, inventory. Um, so I just began writing and wrote eight shows in two years, and ten shows in three years um, to to create a new identity, to create a new brand, because um, most people that knew us as a company assumed that the, that the company was gone. And so it was coupled, it, it wasn't just losing my best friend, it was losing, um, it was losing a source of income, it was losing, uh, you know, all <laughs> the inventory, as it were, uh, was intellectual material that was uh, stuck in our heads, that was the inventory. Um, so, uh, I probably moved a little too quickly, but I think overall your sentiment is correct. There's very little that can happen in moving um, moving back, but it's it's a difficult thing to fight guilt. Um, guilt is such a powerful um, piece that that moves forward. Uh, anger is another negative energy that that is easy to hang on to, um, and both of those can be debilitating toward moving forward. And a combination of guilt and anger, boy, it just keeps you spinning. Yeah, and can be terribly uh, paralyzing, too, in the end game. Ted, we appreciate the time and the candor today. I know it's a, a painful topic to to relive in a sense, and yet out of your pain and your your insights, you offer us, uh, oddly enough, a lot of the pastoral care that you set out to, to prepare yourself to do in the first place. Isn't it amazing the way the Lord brings things full circle? Ted Schwartz, Laughter is Sacred Space, the not-so-typical journey of a Mennonite actor, and the new book, as we mentioned, is newly published by Herald Press and available through Ted's website at Ted and company.com three-star general michael j flynn head of the pentagon intelligence agency knew all the government's dirty secrets he was one of the most respected generals in the military flynn knew what the intel world had been up to he understood its funding he ordered the first audit of the use of contractors this set off alarm bells the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.